0: In the early days of the coronavirus pandemic, a research team developed a wearable test, a patch that could be applied to any face mask that could detect whether someone was infected. They did it by combining engineering with biology.
1: I think improving our ability to engineer by harnessing deep learning to better and for design principles will really help move biology more and more into being an engineering discipline.
0: On this episode of the American Scientist podcast, Synthesizing Engineering and Biology, an interview with James Collins, Professor of Biological Engineering with faculty appointments at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Harvard. I'm Finella Saunders. There's no easy definition of synthetic biology. Biology is the study of life. And synthetic biology, synthetic life, is still science fiction, at least in terms of making life from scratch. Still, the field of synthetic biology is growing. One of the field's founders, James J. Collins, defines synthetic biology this way.
1: I define synthetic biology now as a maturing field that's bringing together engineers with molecular biologists to use engineering principles to model, design, and build synthetic gene circuits and other molecular components, and use these circuits and components to rewire, reprogram living cells and cell-free systems, endowing them with novel functions, enabling a broad range of applications.
0: So Collins says, what makes synthetic biology different from genetic engineering, and genetic engineering has been going on for decades longer is that synthetic biology takes genetic engineering to the next step. Synthetic biology adds in some element of sensing, decision-making, and acting that had not existed before. So I started our interview by asking Collins about how his research team uses bacteria for sensing, decision-making, and acting.
1: Yeah, so you know, this builds on our very early work on synthetic gene circuits, which we had built in bacteria to start going back now 22 years ago and showed, for example, we could create toggle switches, which are these stable memory elements that give you now addressable programmable memory in a living cell. And we got intrigued a few years after that to explore, could we create programmable cells that could sense its environment, decide on what it sensed and then give an output, which may just be in this case, a biosensor. And our initial efforts starting in 2004 were to engineer bacteria that could serve as whole cell biosensors, for detecting various signals of interest in the environment. And in a paper we published in the PNAS in in that year, 2004, we, for example, developed highly sensitive DNA damage sensing systems to function in E. coli. And we did it by basically coupling the toggle switch to the DNA damage sensing response inside E. coli. So that when the DNA damage sensing system was triggered, it would actually flip the toggle switch and you could record the event. We produced a system that was remarkably sensitive, in fact, more sensitive than the best commercially available system at the time. You go forward almost a decade, we were challenged by the Gates Foundation, could we engineer bacteria to detect cholera? And we were able to engineer a different bacterium, the Lactococcus lactis. And we re-engineered it with synthetic circuitry and hybrid receptors that were based in part on repurposed components from the quorum sensing system, the intracellular systems from cholera which now enabled us to reprogram L-lactase to eavesdrop on the presence of cholera so that it could detect small molecules given off by cholera and flip on circuitry inside L-lactase that would then produce enzymes that could change the substrate of different cholera.
0: So they function as switches in a sense. That's right. What other place would you maybe want to have this kind of switch application?
1: You know, and you can envision the switch application in many different cases. So it can be in bioreactors where you only flip on the production of a protein of interest when you reach a certain density. You can envision it in therapeutic purposes where you only want your living cell to produce the therapeutic, which might have some level of toxicity or strong at the site of disease, could be infection or tumor. You could envision having the switch in ag bio setting where You might have a drought-resistant gene, which may limit crop yield, but you'd want to have it flipped on in the face of a drought. And so you could have it off as you plant your crops and they grow. And if you have plenty of water, leave it off and you can maximize your yield. But in the face of a drought, you could flip it on stably now with an induced signal that now enables your cells to, your plants in this case, to survive.
0: Right, okay. I wondered if we could kind of talk about how that works, therapy and diagnostics kind of combined, theranostics.
1: Yeah, so going back to the initial challenge we have in the Gates Foundation, it was actually to engineer bacterium not only to detect cholera, but also to treat cholera. And on the heels of our efforts to create these living diagnostics in Lactus for detecting cholera, we also made efforts to create a living therapeutic uncovering along the way that we didn't need to actually engineer our lactose, that we were able to actually use its natural ability to produce lactate and thus lower the pH in its microenvironment as a means to both prevent and treat cholera infections, but intriguingly found that when we introduce now the diagnostic component to create in a single cell this theranostic capability both to detect and treat, we actually eliminate the ability of those cells to produce lactate that due to the metabolic burden, the fitness cost of the diagnostic circuit, the bug shut down its lactate production. And thus, our theranostic capability actually was accomplished in a population mixture where we mixed the engineered diagnostic cells with the natural therapeutic cells to be able to both report out on infection state and prevent and treat infections.
0: So how are you actually deploying, like for instance, is it going into a person? Is it going into a water system?
1: In our published work, we've only gone into mice but our intention was to go into humans. So the idea would be you could deliver this freeze-dried pill and or spike into dairy products or kefir in the area. We had intentions to begin initial clinical trials on humans uh, in February 2020 with colleagues from Harvard, which we then shut down the trial unfortunately due to the pandemic and have just reinitiated those discussions. But we would, in these cases, target the human and not the water supply. Having said that, I think in many cases, the similar technology could be done and used readily to detect cholera in the water supply. For remediating, I think the challenge there is on scale and dilution. You know, can one really reach all that you need to to do it? And, and that's not clear to
0: me. When you're doing this as a diagnostic, you're talking about having it change a substrate or something like that. How are you actually getting kind of a, a readout?
1: It depends on the application. So on the living therapeutic that you would take orally, it would it Really, would be a matter of changing your stool a different color with the enzymatic substrate. For other applications that are the paper-based ones, it would be in most cases a colorimetric change on the paper that you could detect by eye.
0: Right. So that might be more of like an environmental detection rather That's than. Right. Okay. That's right. Is it possible? Can some of your work also apply when you're using other genetic material or enzymes and not cells? So you don't have to necessarily have like whole cells That's right. involved. How does that actually work?
1: Yeah, so this is this effort that we help pioneer around freeze-dried cell-free synthetic biology. Mm-hmm. And so here we began and became intrigued on to what extent could we harness the power diversity of synthetic biology without needing living cells? And as you can appreciate, living cells will require special handling for storage, for distribution. They need to be fed. They need to be stored with cooling. They have containment concerns, containment issues, et cetera. And so we turned to cell-free systems. So these are systems that have been used for decades in molecular biology. And that is, you can open up a living cell, remove that machinery and play with it in a test tube or Petri dish. And this machinery would include DNA, RNA, molecular machines like ribosomes uh, and other molecular machines, as well as ATP uh, nucleotides and other biomolecules. Working with Keith Pardee, who was in a postdoc in the lab, Keith was able to show that you could take a cell-free extract along with this biology network or sensor, freeze-dry it onto paper, or clothing, or without a substrate as a pellet, and then some time later rehydrate what had been freeze dried, and it now would function as if it was inside a test tube or a living cell, even though it was on paper, on a piece of clothing, or as a pellet now in the bottom of a small plastic vial. And this opened up possibilities now to create paper based diagnostics, to create wearable diagnostics, and to create portable on demand biomolecular manufacturing.
0: I guess with that, you know, different kind of substrate about how it works on fabric you're going to probably have challenges that you wouldn't on just on paper.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's early in each of these days. What's interesting on the paper side is we've done durability tests to show that the system has a shelf life well past two years, which is about what's needed for consumer products. On the wearable side, we've done less testing in that much of this was done in the midst of the pandemic and uh, haven't done as much of the field testing as we'd like, but yeah, it becomes an interesting challenge to consider exposure to rain, to sweat, to, moisture, humidity, um, which will confound functionality. And thus one needs to think very carefully about how to best do it.
0: Are there specific applications for fabric that you are thinking would be kind of more appropriate for clothing? Like what kind of things are you targeting for fabric?
1: We were pre-pandemic looking at a number of different applications. So could you have wearable diagnostics for healthcare workers for first responders, military personnel? Notably thinking about, could you have the lab coat of the future? So could you have patches, wearable diagnostic components for doctors, physicians, and nurses who, as they make their rounds, could use these to identify if they've been exposed to a pathogen during their rounds and act accordingly, uh, both for their own healthcare as well as to gain insight into possible operating in the hospital. We also were looking at Johnny of the future for patients. So could you use this to identify if there's a pressure sore that's possibly infected and maybe infected with a resistant infection? In the midst of the pandemic, we were revising this and had been challenged by the editors, could we come up with a compelling real-world application? We're exploring a a wearable patch uh, on your jacket or on your wrist for detecting Ebola from the exposure. But as the pandemic hit, we realized we had an opportunity to do something relevant to the pandemic and came up with the idea that we create a a wearable face mask diagnostic, so a, a small insert that could be added to any face mask that could use these. Freeze-dried, self synthetic biology to report out on infection state, and we were able to actually pull this together quite quite nicely, uh, which was really good.
0: Actual like use in humans or product uses or on the
1: diagnostic side, I'm involved with a company called Sherlock So I'm a co-founder of Synlogic, co-founder of Sherlock. I'm on the board at Sherlock, and Sherlock's been advancing next-generation CRISPR diagnostics for COVID. Have an approved product that's on the market and being used in a number of different countries. And advancing now at home diagnostics based on these covert efforts,
0: are there any like ethical or privacy concerns that have come up in your work?
1: So yes, when we initially proposed the face mask diagnostic, the the misunderstanding by the public was that the the output would be on the outside of the face mask and so that it would signal to folks as you walked around on the street or in, that you were infected. and that was not ever the intention of the design. but when we first presented this publicly, and it might have been in the spring of 2020 as a pandemic. That was a, a misconception, and thus privacy concerns were legit for that. On these others, you know, no, I think you can, you know, again, it's how one uses it, but I think one can properly protect privacy with even these new synbiotech technologies.
0: So I'm curious what you think about this whole process of actually getting a product out from research?
1: Yeah, um, you know, it's, it's a hard process. It's a long process. I think it's a needed process. It's interesting, I think, to really have the impact that many of us would like. It's important to have the work translated. And it's something that we're really not well-trained to do. It's something that we are not generally well set up to do. And so the number of startups that fail is quite high. Unfortunately, uh, I think unacceptably too high but it's a process that really relies very much on a good business model and a good business team. And so in my 20 years or so of translational work, I found that the science and technology that we might contribute from our lab or that we would contribute from our lab is at only about five or 10% of the story. And the much bigger story is the business team, the business model. And so it's really trying to find those right connections. And I think some universities do it well, most don't do it well. And I think some of my colleagues do it well, most don't do it well. And I think we need to figure out how we collectively as a community, as a set of ecosystems can do it better. How can we better train the folks on the business side along with the science and how can we make those right connections to really bring forward what in many cases are amazing technologies, some of which languish and don't get properly translated.
0: Just to kind of close out, can we talk about some of the limitations right now with synthetic biology? Like we're kind of at the stumbling block still.
1: You know, I think there are many limitations in the field. So I think it's early, as I said, we're, I think, shifted from emerging now to maturing. I think in many cases that biology is not yet an engineering discipline. And in many cases, we don't have the design principles to create the objects of interest with the desired functionality. And two, we don't have enough parts or components to engineer biology as readily as we like. And we don't have the tools to kind of measure the behavior in real time of our components as an electrical engineer would you know the ability to create those components as quickly as we'd like so that the time frame to kind of build, test, learn, rebuild, you know, design, build, test, learn, then do it again, is much, much slower in biology due to, to the intrinsic time delays. We're not, you know, we're not gonna really get around those, but I think improving our ability to engineer by harnessing deep learning to better and for design principles, by improving our ability, by dramatically expanding the parts that we have available, I think will really help move biology more and more into being an engineering discipline.
0: Well, I really appreciate your
1: time. Thanks for the interest, Finnella. It was always good talking with you.
0: That was James J. Collins speaking with me about the maturing field of synthetic biology, a field Collins helped found. For a different excerpt of our interview, read my article, Synthesizing Engineering and Biology in the March-April, 2023 issue of American Scientist or online at www.americanscientist.org. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine, published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. I'm Fenella Saunders. Thanks for joining us.